As Rodney says, that was the only hymn that uh, William Featherstone ever wrote. He was 27 when he died, and he was 16 years of age when he wrote that hymn. So it's quite a, a remarkable bit of work. But he loved the Lord constantly, even on earth as well as in heaven. We're reading from Revelation chapter 2 and the first seven verses. Revelation 2, page 1234. Easy to find. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together just for a moment. Lord, we ask tonight that you might challenge us. We would say with the psalmist, try me, search me, know my thoughts, and if there be any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Do this, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is a high watermark in the New Testament. It's regarded by many as the most spiritual epistle in the New Testament. And the church there was the home of uh, a husband and wife team by the name of uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They were well versed in the scriptures and doctrine and they were much used of God. They were the spiritual and professional associates of the Apostle Paul. Like him, they were tent makers. Now, after hearing a man called Apollos preach, Priscilla and Aquila took him to one side for a quiet word. I know the feeling. Perhaps they'd They would enjoy supper together after the service in a friendly manner before they sorted him out. 
Apollos himself was well taught. He, he was eloquent. He was even mighty in the scriptures. But we read that Priscilla and Aquila expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 26. So, though he was a man of great learning, there were gaps in his theology. Priscilla and Aquila were able to help. Apollos also had connections with the church at Ephesus, although he was born in Alexandria. Ephesus was a good church. Paul's letter to them was not to correct false doctrine, as were some of the other letters that he wrote to the churches. We learn more of the character of the church at Ephesus from Acts 20. Luke records that the Ephesian elders, the ordained representatives of the congregation, overseers, shepherds of the church, gathered to say a final farewell, an emotional farewell, to their beloved teacher Paul. They fell on his neck and kissed him. They were weeping. They knelt down and they prayed together. Such was the breadth and the depth of their love, the warmth of their affection. It was a sound church where the dominant virtue was love. And that's a church to be commended. As the years went by, how did this church in Ephesus fare? The apostle John exiled on the Isle of Patmos was given messages from the risen Christ, as from Revelation 2. He was to write these messages down for seven particular churches, the first of which was for Ephesus. Now this was some 40 years uh, after the Acts event with, with Paul. Another generation has arisen in the church, which it seems did not have the same depth of devotion. In 40 years, there have been changes. An Old Testament <clears throat> example of um, the sort of change that can take place is in Judges 2, where the we read, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who'd seen all the great works of the Lord he'd done in Israel under Joshua's wise and strong leadership. When Joshua died, they lost a great and godly leader. And we read a time of spiritual decline followed. A generation arose, we read, who did not know the Lord or the works that he'd done for Israel. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And decline continued until everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Change at Ephesus prompted a challenge from the ascended Lord. He still speaks to individuals and he speaks to churches. Imagine Christ in the pulpit at Charlotte Chapel this evening. That would really be great. And he's likely to say things to encourage us because he often did that. Commending us in some areas of the work we do in this church... But, at some point, pausing solemnly to make a point, to say to the church, I've got something against you. 
Of course, in truth, he is here. Hope you believe that. He's unseen, but he's present in his living and powerful word, which is timeless in its relevance, and also by his spirit. The Lord Jesus is here. Um, The Lord praised the church at Ephesus for its activities, its good work, its toil, patient endurance, and for bearing up for Christ's name. They labored well and willingly. There was further commendation for its tolerance of evil false teaching, false apostles. They had been loyal to the truth of the gospel. They protected the sheep from the wolves, false teachers, and they continued to value sound doctrine. Holding to the truth was important to the Lord. So there was commendation, credit where it was due. But we have to say there was also condemnation. I have this against you. What do you have against us, Lord? Answer? A decaying love. You've abandoned the love you had. You've grown weary in devotion. Verse 4. Truth is important to him, as we see, but so also is love. Two things in which believers are to continue, according to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. We are to continue in his truth, and we are to continue in his love. I've got to say, if you're a Christian tonight, you love Jesus. A Christian loves Jesus. That's the the least we can can say. Uh, Reading some of the Psalms during the week, in Psalm 18, verse 1 begins this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And then flicking over the pages to Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and supplications. Do you love the Lord tonight? I hope you do. I've been reading also again this week about the temple worship. If you're going through your yearly Bible, you might have reached two chronicles, as I have. And um, David, uh, in, in David and Solomon's day, the organization of the worship was very thorough. And I, I discovered that the most frequent statement of God's song praise is the refrain... His love endures forever. They were always saying that. His love endures forever. And another expression, the Lord's unfailing love. Forever and unfailing. That's the nature of God's love. Now, persistence in love is needed in our human relationships. Marriage, for example. Husband and wives can exercise their duties to one another dutifully and conscientiously. They can toil for one another faultlessly, showing faithful endurance in every circumstance, in trying circumstances. But they must be on their guard against a waning affection. A danger with the passage of time is a lessening of love. Love needs to be regularly rekindled. Now, I know someone in this church who tells uh, his wife five times a day that he loves her. How does he remember? 
Maybe every time he has a piece of fruit. Five, five a day. <clears throat> Especially if it's a peach. Um, <clears throat> you might say, I told my wife 25 years ago that I loved her. That should do it. No need to bang on about it. Every 25 years, that's enough. One of our greatest human needs is to be loved. And to know we are loved. We love to be loved. Do you remember your first love? How excited you were when your love was reciprocated? Days when you could think of little else but the love of your life? Your heart missed a beat if the phone rang, if a letter came, or a text these days. And you still have those letters wrapped in pink ribbon. You walked around with a permanent smile on your face, which would take surgery to remove. The thrill of first love. <clears throat> Ephesus was given a message basic to the other messages for the other churches. It was a challenge to heart and conscience. The master goes to the root of the problem. And we have to say that to whatever Christ says to you and me, by way of correction, there should be a response from us. If he identifies something wrong or lacking in your life, his command is, repent. No beating around the bush. Put the matter right, the Lord would say, then we can move forward. My word is not simply to condemn you, but to change you. Verse 5, remember from where you have fallen. Repent, do the first works. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Repentance comes first in preaching, whether to Christians or unbelievers. You can check that out with John the Baptist, with Jesus, with Peter, and Paul's initial messages. They were of repentance. The Word of God must change you if it's to be of any profit. Is the Spirit saying to the church this evening, you've lost something, and it's this, the love you had at first. It hasn't endured. It hasn't been unfailing. It hasn't proved unfailing. Indeed, of how many of us individually would this not be true? If this message isn't for many Christians here, I'd be surprised. Do we love the Lord as we once loved him? And does that matter to us as it matters to him? I have this against me, you've grown weary of loving me. Recognize this and repent. Spend more time with the Lord. Speak to Him more often. Listen to Him more often. Perform the first works which were motivated by love. Faith that worked by love. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of the love of Christ, which can be either a, a possessive gen, an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. It could mean the love of Christ for us or the love of Christ from your heart. Well, in Revelation 2, the Lord has more in mind our love for Him. 
Galatians 5 and verse 6 says, In Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, the externals don't count. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, is faith working by love, through love. So verse 5 also mentions a consequence should there be a failure to repent. And repent not of adultery or heresy, but coldness towards him. And he says this, If there is no change, I will come and remove your lampstand out of its place. You will no longer shine. A loveless church will be removed. At the personal level, Paul feared after having preached to others, he might be disqualified. Removed from the Christian race. So I ask you tonight, how is it with you? You look back, remembering the things you used to do for the Lord, and I can remember some of you from 36 years ago. You were in the front line, you were dependable, you were available, your presence was a great encouragement to others, you gave your time, you gave your energy, you gave your, de your devotion without hesitation. Your faithful involvement was greatly appreciated. The love of Christ controlled you. You gave your fellow believers much joy and set a good example for them to follow how it used to be. There's a law of physics and more scientific minds here tonight than mine, but isn't there a law of physics which says that everything is in motion in this world is wanting to come to a stop? Something like that. Something which makes us want to slow down in serving the Lord and His people. A sort of a spiritual deceleration. How is this love to be rekindled? Scripture teaches that it is a work of God. It's a gift of God. The Holy Spirit conveys love to our hearts when He comes to dwell within there's no other source for the love of which I'm speaking but the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 and verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Through the power of God's Spirit, Christ's character is formed in the most unlikely people. The Spirit motivates the Christian to pursue holiness. To be a better person, to take us beyond all that we are by nature. John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus said, The Holy Spirit will bring glory to me by taking of the things of Christ and making them known to you. And that spurs you on when you know more about Christ. He creates an inward desire for godliness and produces the godliness. Philippians 2.13, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And we move towards what God means us to be. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is all round likeness to Christ. And the first grace of that fruit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love poured 
into the heart, permeates the whole of a Christian's being, his mind, his imagination, his affections, his actions. Love, the single virtue in which all the commands of God are fulfilled. <clears throat> Love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians 5 also teaches that love cannot be separated from the eight other graces that together comprise the fruit. Not the fruits of the Spirit, please. It's the fruit of the Spirit um, because love actually embodies them all. Genuine love is joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, good, faithful, and self-controlled. Possessing fullness of love is to possess all the graces. Think of the moral attributes of Almighty God. He is kind, patient, gentle, good, faithful, peaceful, and it's all summed up in three words. God is love. And the only way to possess love is to possess God and then for him to more fully possess you and me. John says, if any man loves, he is of God. Um, Galatians 5.23, against love and these accompanying Christ-like virtues, there is no law. Mary Slessor, the missionary to West Africa, gave a simple definition of love. She says, to love equals to live for. If you love God, you live for him. The first and greatest commandment is to love God with your whole being. <clears throat> the second greatest commandment is to love others as much as you love yourself. An old commandment, a new commandment, love one another. 2 Corinthians 5.15, we read, It was out of love that Christ died for all. And he did so to achieve a certain purpose when he died. And we are told, He died for all, that these, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. A practical achievement of the atonement that we should no longer live for ourselves. Has that been accomplished in your life? Our love for God is the result of our grateful appreciation of his love for us. And the pinnacle of God's love, according to the Bible, and <clears throat> uh, is pretty consistent in its explanation, the pinnacle of God's love is always associated with the cross. The reconciling work of Christ through his sacrifice. 1 John 4.10 Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his Son as the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. God commends his love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not freely with him give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
the German pastor, had a special name for Jesus, which I like. He called him the man for others. The man for others. Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples if you criticize one another, ignore one another, avoid one another, despise one another, refuse to forgive one another. Is that what he said? All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So were they identified at times how these Christians love one another. The hallmark of the true followers of Christ. John 13 and 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you. It wasn't so new, but it was new and it was old. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then John 13 at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. Persistent, enduring, unfailing love. He can say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Um, the NIV said, having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He washed his disciples' feet out of deepest love. And he says, I've given you an example to follow, serve one another as I have served you. How do I really know that I am a Christian? Because I made a decision, because I signed a decision card because I went forward at a Billy Graham meeting. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Here's a test to apply from the Bible so it can't be argued with. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love could I just inter interject there, has not made that transition from death to life. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And this is confirmed by Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 13, verse 8, he said, Let no debt remain outstanding except the con continuing debt we have to love one another. It's a debt. When I've been called to a pastor of a church, my debt was to love the people. When Paul Reese comes, his charge is to love the people, to love the congregation. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's our debt to discharge, giving love for others. And testimony um, for Christ is rendered null and void without this grace of graces. So I, I, I must at this point say something about 1 Corinthians 13. You all know that. You've heard it at weddings. 
If I speak in the languages of men and angels, but have not love, I'm just a big noise. It doesn't say that, but that's what it means. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am zero. Zilch. Nothing. If I give all that I possess and feed the poor, surrender my body in martyrdom to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now why did Paul write a wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 devoted to extolling a single grace? It has been described as the greatest, strongest, and deepest thing he ever wrote. Some think, first, some think 1 Corinthians 13 was written so that we'd have a nice passage to read at weddings. A beautiful hymn to love. Should I enlighten you? Paul, in fact, was giving the Corinthian church the scolding of their lives. The fruit of the Spirit was all too absent at Corinth. And he was exhorting them to grow up into spiritual maturity and be made perfect in love. It was a strong rebuke to a loveless church that boasted too much in the gifts of the Spirit and had too little regard for the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is first of all love. The spiritual worth this is what Paul is doing. The spiritual worth of all the gifts combined is compared with love. Wherever love is absence in the exercise of whatever gift, that gift is worth nothing. Wherever love is absence. Loveless service is wood, hay, and stubble. Love-inspired service is gold, Silver, precious stones, both extremes to be tested by fire. And we all know what happens to wood, hay, and stubble when it's subjected to fire. And we all know what happens to gold, silver, and precious stones. Just purifies them. I know what it's like to envy another man's gifts. I want to tell you, Alistair Begg followed me at Charlotte Chapel. And, and I, I had to teach him the job. Didn't take long for him to overtake me. God gave him a worldwide ministry and he left me in a little corner. I love him to bits. But you know, gifts are not everything. That's up to God. What have we that we have not received it is love that gives the believer his true value in the kingdom of God, not gift. Paul is speaking of values, maintaining that in this chapter, love is greater than anything that you can say with the greatest oratory. Love is greater than anything that you're able to do with the most skillful ability. Thirdly, Anything you can give, love is better than anything you can give at the greatest personal cost. The Apostle speaks with 
they all speak with one voice in this matter. John, Paul, and Peter. Not forgetting Peter. 1 Peter 4 and verse 8. Above all. Now you can't get higher than that. Above all. Above all. Love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers. It doesn't spread. Love doesn't uncover. I had a church on the west of Scotland and um, there's a lady who used to come to the prayer meeting. She left before I got there. But folks used to tell me about, about the strange things she did at the prayer meeting. She'd struck up one time while everybody had their heads bowed. Bless them all. Bless them all. The long and the short and the tall. That wasn't the right song to sing. But she would, she would say, Lord, uh, Lord, you'll have read in the Glasgow Herald this evening. Um, that Jimmy Smith, Lord, I could tell you a thing or two about him. And uh, I hope Jimmy Smith's not here, by the way. Um, if, if you're Jimmy Smith, you're not the one we're talking about. But she, she was a gossip. Um, love covers. Love doesn't gossip. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and so live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For love to be a blessing, it's not just words. It has to be seen and proved practically. And of course, when we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see his love proved in every action. Um, here's a challenge from John again. First John 4, 8 and 9. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. This is how God showed Practically proved, demonstrated his love among us. He sent his son into the world that we might live through him. Send from his eternal home where he ruled, where he was worshipped by angels, where everyone knew, loved, honored, and obeyed him. Send from there to live among hostile strangers, to be despised and rejected, in a very unpleasant environment, a world where he was actually eventually crucified. Now, no one in the church tonight can view the cross and conclude, God does not love me. God gave Christ to that out of love. Jesus gave his life for our sins out of love. John ascribes praise in, in Revelation 1, the first chapter, in these terms, to him who loves us. And what has he done? Him who loved us? He's freed us from our sins by his blood. To him be glory forever and ever. Paul prayed for this church of which we've been centering our thoughts tonight at Ephesus. He prayed in chapter 3, for the Ephesians, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know a love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Love has always been God's prime emphasis. He spoke to Israel as a nation and ordained that the normal and ideal human relationship was to be one based on the foundation of love. It's not just new covenant teaching. Even as far back as Moses, in Leviticus 19, God said, Do not hate your brother in your heart. Do not seek revenge. Do not bear a grudge against one of your people but love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now, I'm almost finished. It's an epilogue. Did the church repent? Did they have ears to hear what the Spirit was saying? Would that they did. To my knowledge, there is not a vibrant church in Ephesus today, and some of you have been there. And tell, tell us more about it than I can. Memories of Christianity, ruins to remind us of how great Christianity once was there. But today, a spiritual desert. In my teens, I remember being told that in all of Turkey, there were ten known Christians. One O, oh, ten Christians. By the year 2000, this had risen to 2,000 Christians. Great, wonderful. 2,000 out of 70 million. That's one Christian in every 34,000. There are more Christians in Edinburgh than in all Turkey. Asia Minor, where the seven churches were located has been spiritually barren for centuries. I think Turkey remains the largest unreached, unreached nation in the world. We returned to Edinburgh last October just in time to celebrate God's goodness to Charlotte Chapel over 200 years. Huge changes have taken place during that time. Huge changes since I was here the first time. Ephesus demonstrates how a church cannot survive on the merit of its history. I've known many churches that were evangelical landmarks preached in some of them. I, can, I, can, I could name churches with amazing reputations, large congregations, Souls regularly saved and uh, great preaching. Generously supported missions. A lot of spiritual life. And I, I can look back 56 years as a Christian. I was converted in 1953. It's only 14. Some of those churches that I've known over the years are decimated. Others are closed. They were once glorious, spiritual, sound, loving fellowships. But the lamps of love stopped 
glowing and they were removed by the Lord of the church. Even though as doctrinally sound as ever. Lord, will you rekindle my love? And then will you take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. The Lord ends this short passage, this first message, with a gracious promise. He is more or less saying lovelessness must be addressed and overcome. But if you do overcome lovelessness, you will eat of the tree of life. You shall eat with Christ in the paradise of God, in mansions of glory and endless delight. I cannot adequately expound those, that last promise. But the reward for love is obviously amazing. Christian, love Christ and his people and your church will experience revival. You won't be able to contain the blessing because if you love Christ, you'll keep his commands. We sang, my Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, it's now, not then, not 40 years ago, in mansions of glory, if ever I love thee, Lord, it's now, it's now, it's now, it's now. It has to be tonight. Um, it wasn't long before this young man who wrote the hymn was in glory. And God's people also, uh, they owe a great deal to Francis Ridley Havergal for the hymn that has been the basis of this series over the months, and I was given this charge to conclude it. That hymn has been a blessing to generations. Take my life, take my moments, take my days, my hands, my feet, my voice, my lips, my silver, my gold, my intellect, my will, my heart. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. And then wrapping it all up, take myself. You can't give more than that, can you? Christ gave himself. And I should not do less. I should give myself. Take myself and I will ever, unfailingly, only, exclusively, all entirely for thee. What a change there would be if we all meant that and acted upon it. It's a warning to any church. Once love dies, the church dies. We need to pray for a revival of love. So we're going to sing the hymn now for the last time. Sing it from the depths of your heart. Sing it with sincerity. Sing it with commitment. And let's all rededicate our lives to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee.